Well, good evening, everybody. It's a, a pleasure to be with you uh, here in Market Hill. As the Reverend said, my name is Simon Turpin, and I work for Answers in Genesis, an apologetics ministry. It doesn't mean um, we go around apologizing uh, for the Christian faith, or a lot of people would want us to do that. Rather, it means we give a a defense of the Christian faith. I'm going to show you um, tonight how we do that in the book of Genesis. Obviously, the ministry Answers in Genesis, you would expect us to be speaking on the book of Genesis. And this is an important topic because... If you're aware of things going on in the culture, especially in England, I don't know if when we come to Northern Ireland, we see the difference in the church in Northern Ireland and the church in England. You know, when you go to to England, by and large, the church that we speak to on a Sunday, you can get anywhere between 30 and 40 people at most, probably in most churches in England. When we come to Northern Ireland, we see um, a very big difference. And there's a lot of change going on in our culture, and that's even seen within the church. And so tonight we're going to see why the book of Genesis is foundational to the entire Christian faith. And one of the ways we do that at Answers in Genesis, as you can see on the screen, is what we call the seven C's of history. You can see there creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation. You know, all those first four C's are founded in which book? The book of Genesis, right? Creation, the fact that God created the world. He created supernaturally in six days. Corruption, Adam's sin corrupted the entire creation when he rebelled against God. Catastrophe, in the days of Noah, there was a global flood that destroyed the entire earth. You know, if you go and speak to to people in in the church in England, you'll, you'll notice that people either reject the flood, they'll see it as a myth, even in the church, or they'll see it as a local flood. But I'm going to show you tonight why that's a global event. Confusion, because at the time of the Tower of Babel, because the people refused to move around the world, what did God do? God spread the people around the world. And according to the Bible, how many races of people are there? You don't have to be quiet tonight. You You can interact. There's one race, yeah. Adam's race. There are not multiple races of people. You know, then Christ comes into the world. He's born of a virgin. He dies on the cross. And we look forward to the consummation of all things. You know, those last three C's are preached in most churches. But you need to realize they are founded on those first four C's. And if you remove the first four C's, as many churches have done, then you really have no foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's good to see uh, a number of young people in, in, in the audience tonight. And I want to ask them a question. And so one of you is going to have to answer a question. Can someone tell me, out of the young people, hands up, what was Jesus' first miracle in the Gospels? Is anyone brave enough to put their hand up? Young. Water into wine. Water into wine. Any other answers? That's, that's by and large the, the cor- correct answer. Water into wine. John chapter 2, when Jesus turns water into wine. But what about this? John 1 1. Technically, you're right. Technically, you're right. You can help yourself to a book afterwards for, for getting it right. But we forget, don't we? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. We forget creation was a supernatural miracle. And just by reading those first few words, in the beginning, where where does that take you back to? 
takes you back to the book of Genesis, right? John is telling you who the Lord Jesus is. He's the God who created everything in the beginning. And you need to remember that Jesus is our creator as well as our savior. And the reason you need a savior is because you are in rebellion against your creator. And so the gospel begins in the book of Genesis. And we need to realize that Darwinian evolution is an attack on our Lord Jesus because it tells us, Darwin was trying to tell us that nature, not God, can do the creating itself. And if you've ever read The Origin of Species, most people have never read The Origin of Species, but if you do read it, and if you listen to modern Darwinian evolutionists, they'll tell you that basically Darwin proposed that all of life came from a common ancestor um, millions of years ago. It went through descent um, with modification. But basically, Darwin was trying to communicate that all of life is related. In fact, people will often use this argument as an argument for evolution. And it commits what we call a fallacy of equivocation. Equivocation is when someone shifts the meaning of a word in, in the middle of a sentence. So people often say, I know evolution is true, because we see evolution happening all the time. And so when they say, when we, we know evolution is true, they're thinking descent with modification, that single-celled ancestors evolved into people. And they'll say, because we see it happening all the time. And what will they point to? Well, they'll point to the fact that things like dogs change. Cats change. People change. Therefore, in their minds, evolution is true. Now, do dogs change? Yes, they do. How do they change? We believe in natural selection, but which way do dogs change? They go downhill. They're not going uphill. They're not improving, right? Even secular scientists would tell you something like the original dog was probably a wolf. Now, today we have poodles. God did not create poodles, right? When God created, he said everything was very good. If you know what a poodle is, you'll know it's not very good. Sorry to the poodle owners. But see, Darwinian evolution requires an upward change. You need more genetic information. If you're going to go from an amoeba to a person, you need to add genetic information. But you don't see that in the real world. What you see is either a conservative change or a downhill change. And so you need to be able to spot those fallacies. But if you read in the book of Genesis, what you read is that God spoke supernaturally things into creation over the space of six days. He spoke it supernaturally into existence. There's no evolution in the book of Genesis. In fact, we can represent this with what we call evolution's tree of life versus creation's orchard of life evolutionary tree of life, everything goes back to a single-celled um, ancestor. But creation, um, orchard of life, if you remember, if you read in Genesis chapter 1, ten times it tells us what? That God created according to, its, according to its kind, not its species, according to its kind. And so you see that represented in the real world, right? Because dogs, we've already said this, produce dogs, cats produce cats, elephants produce... Yeah, you get it. See, what you see in God's word is what you, what, we, what you read in God's word, sorry, is what you see in God's world. And what you need to realize is that Darwin knew what he's setting out to prove and he knew what he was setting out to disprove. Because many people don't realize, actually, that Darwin wasn't trained scientifically, he was trained theologically. Darwin was a theologian. 
Yes, he did some great work in, 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 as an amateur scientist, but he was trained at Cambridge University in theology. So he knew what the Bible said about creation. He knew what the Bible said about the fall. He knew what the Bible said about the flood and the cross and the virgin birth. But he also knew what he was trying to prove and disprove. And here's the point, because many people, it might not be in your church or many churches in Northern Ireland, but in England, many people say, well, what's wrong? Why couldn't God use evolution to create the world? You know, the first person to disagree with you would have been Charles Darwin, because he never believed God used that process. In fact, there was a man who was a Christian towards the end of Darwin's life. He wrote to Charles Darwin because he could see the direction in which he was going in his life. And he wrote to him with great concern. And he asked him, Charles, what do you believe about the Bible? And what do you believe about the Lord Jesus? And he, Darwin politely wrote back and he said this. I'm sorry to have to inform you that I do not believe in the Bible as a divine revelation. And therefore not in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And here's the point. You need to realize there are consequences to ideas. Once you say that God used evolution to create, you're, not, you're no longer relying on the Bible. You're relying on man's word. And see, this is where the battle has taken place in our culture, because there's really two battles raging today, at least in the Western world. It's a battle between the Christian worldview, which is built on God's word, and the man's word, which is the secular worldview. And we see that clash within our culture today. And many people don't understand why all these battles are going on. But it's, it's really to do with two worldviews that are colliding with each other. And we need to realize if we're going to answer the secular worldview, then we need to have our foundation in place. And our foundation starts in Genesis 1 to 11. Because really, when you think about the secular worldview and you think about all these issues that come out of secularism, because secularism would tell us there's no God, there's naturalism, there's the Big Bang, there's evolution. And then you see in the culture all these issues come out, don't you? You see gay marriage, you see wokeism, gender ideology, uh, critical race theory, abortion, pornography. All these things come out of a secular worldview because it's a worldview that denies the existence of God. But from a Christian point of view, how are you going to answer all those different questions when it comes to the sanctity of life, the age of the earth, marriage, all those questions are ultimately founded upon Genesis 1 to 11. And so you need to have that foundation in place in order to answer those questions because it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Once you have your foundation in place, then you can build the jigsaw and you can complete the project. Genesis 1 to 11 is the foundation for all of our Christian theology. Just think about this issue. The issue of sexuality, the issue, the issue of identity. In Genesis chapter 1, on day 6 of creation, we read this. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And God goes on to say, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. How many you know, people here would ever have thought today we would even be discussing what it is to be male or female. 20, if you said that to someone 20 or even 10 years ago, that that would be up for a debate, you would have thought, you're mad. We, we know what male and female is, but you need to realize the reason people are challenging that today is because they have a different foundation to you, if you believe God's word. And the way you need to answer them is based upon God's word, because you need to realize in the Bible... Man is made in the image of God, but the beasts of the field 
and the animals are not made in God's image. There's a reason why man has value. He has worth. But if you go to many zoos um, around the country, I don't know if you've got a zoo in Northern Ireland, um, but this one says, um, basically, we are not... Um, after all, the only beings with personalities, rational thought, and emotions. There is no sharp line dividing us from the chimpanzees and the other apes we, we humans are part of are not separate from the animal kingdom. In fact, if you notice there, they state specifically in that sign there's no sharp line between dividing the apes and the humans. Now, they say that on the sign, but in reality... They recognize there's a sharp line because you see it in the fact that they put up fences, right? There's the dividing line. If you take that fence down, that lady is not going to last too long, right? Once that ape gets a hold of her, there goes the dividing line, right? So they recognize it themselves in the fact that they put up those cages. There is a sharp line. But here's the thing. When you look at the building block of life, DNA, it tells you that man is unique, Man and woman are unique because even when you think about the issue of abortion, I was speaking um, at a Methodist church a couple of weeks ago in England, and we don't get into many Methodist churches. And I was speaking on the uniqueness of life, and there was a young lady in the audience who stood up, or she didn't stand up, but she basically shouted out, but it's just a clump of cells. See, that's where many people are at in their thinking. But you need to realize when you look at DNA and you think about the issue of abortion at fertilization you get dna from the male and female all the dna all that genetic information is there from the beginning all that genetic information that you get from the male and female builds a human being in fact when you think about it um, there is no new information added at fertilization, you get all that information that it takes to build a human being. That means we are made in the image of God right from fertilization. And the psalmist even tells us, doesn't he, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, if you look at your seats this evening, you'll see um, one of our sample, one of our tracks that you can take away. And I encourage you to read that when you go home. But a number of years ago, if you know Ken, how many people... Have heard of the, the Creation Museum. You know, you've heard of the Creation Museum. A number of years ago, Ken Ham uh, built the Creation Museum, and then in 2016, they built the Ark Encounter. Well, recently, um, they built a new exhibit at the Creation Museum, the Fearfully and Wonderfully Made exhibits. Now, this is, is an amazing presentation teaching us how we are fearfully and wonderfully made, the fact that we are made in God's image. And it takes you through the whole development of a, of a child in its mother's womb. In fact, they've, they've got great technology that you can see how life is being formed from the moment of fertilization. You can see how it's a human being from the moment of conception. In fact, even at 24 days, 24 days of life, there is a heartbeat there in the child. So it's not just a clump of cells. It's not just a clump of cells. 28 days of life, um, you can see the body begin to form. 40 days of life, the brain is beginning to develop. 
18 weeks of life, um, the skeleton system is there, and you can see it progress, 25 weeks of life, 33 weeks of life until um, it's about to come out and ready to live in the real world. You can see how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. In fact, there's a book at the back that's um, based basically upon that um, exhibit there in in, in the museum, and I would encourage you, I think we've only got a couple of copies left, but if you can get hold of that, use it to teach your children. Use it to teach your children, because if you don't teach your children, you know who will teach your children? The world will teach your children. The world will teach your children. So here's the thing. You need to realize, if you believe, as many people do in our culture today, that there's ape in your past, what does that mean? It means morality is relative, because there is no God. A man can decide truth for themselves. You know, you think about the book of Judges. What does it tell you in the book of Judges? When there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in there in their own eyes. That's what the Western world is like today. Because they rejected God, they make up their own um, morality. But here's the thing. If you have Adam in your past, then God is the authority. God sets the rules. There's a reason why there's right and wrong, good and bad. There's a reason for the sanctity of life. There's a reason why marriage is between one man and one woman. In fact, many people today will say, when it comes to the issue of sexuality and homosexuality, but Jesus never said anything about that issue. Well, we would disagree because Jesus, when he was in conversation with the Pharisees of his day, the legal teachers, they asked Jesus a question about divorce. And how did Jesus answer those um, Pharisees? Well, we read in Matthew 19, and he answered and said to them, have you not read that which he made at the beginning of, um, made, sorry, and he which made them at the beginning made them what? Male and female. Even in a fallen world, Jesus still tells us we are made male and female and said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and twain shall become one flesh. If you know where Jesus is quoting from, he's quoting from Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He sees the book of Genesis as authority and he defined marriage as being between one man and one woman for life. And he confirmed it was male and female. Jesus did speak about these issues. In fact, when you think about it, it's not just the doctrine of marriage that is built upon that history in Genesis being true. It's all our doctrine. All our doctrine, either directly or indirectly, is founded upon that history in Genesis being true. We've already talked about the image of God. comes from the book of Genesis. When you think about sexuality... It comes from the book of Genesis. The unity of mankind, the fact that there is one race, goes back to the book of Genesis. God created male and female to begin with. He created Adam and Eve. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Therefore, there's only one race. The reason Jesus dies, the reason the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, dies on the cross, goes back to Genesis chapter 3 because of the sin of Adam. The reason we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth goes back to the book of Genesis. The reason you all came in tonight wearing clothes is not just because it's cold outside and it's snowing, right? If I came back in July and it was sunny, you would still come in wearing clothes because in, originally God made them, what, Adam was without, he, he knew that he was naked. He didn't know, sorry, he didn't know that he was naked, right? He was without shame. He was, there was no shame in the beginning. It was once he sinned, then he realized something was wrong. See, even the origin of clothing goes back to the book of Genesis. But the reason so many people 
today have a problem with the book of Genesis. In their minds, they think science, modern science, has disproved the book of Genesis to be wrong. Because in their mind, the Big Bang and the evolution of man is a proven fact. In fact, here's the thing. What you need to do when someone says, but science shows Genesis is wrong, you need to ask that person, what do you mean by science? What is science? Because our answers in Genesis, we don't reject science. Because if you just look up the dictionary definition of science, it means to know. It comes from a Latin word, which means to know. And there's a number of ways in which you can know about God's world. The main way is what we call observational or, um, observational, um, or experimental science, which is when you use your five senses in the present to go out and investigate the world. And that helps you come up with technologies such as satellites, aeroplanes, you know, your mobile phones, the laptop that I'm using tonight. Many evolutionists would say, I'm a hypocrite. How can you speak tonight telling us the book of Genesis is true, and yet you're using a laptop? But that's because they don't recognize a valid distinction. We believe in observational science. What we would reject is a form of historical science. Because historical or origin science is your belief about the past when you were not there to see what went on. See, even if you believe Genesis, Genesis is historical science because who was there in the beginning? God, right? No scientist was there in the beginning. It was God and God alone. And he has revealed some of the events that took place in the beginning. No scientist was there to see the Big Bang. No scientist was there to see the evolution of man. Those scientists believe those things took place in the past. They did not observe them. And you need to be able to recognize that distinction when you, when you watch in a program, if you watch the BBC. That many people watch the BBC these days, or at least I hope you don't. But here's another thing we need to recognize. Because a lot of Christians think this issue is a battle over the evidence because they think if I can just give my evolutionary friend all this evidence for creation, then they'll become a creationist. And Richard Dawkins, if you know who Richard Dawkins is, the famous atheist, he's thinking if you silly Christians would just put away your Bibles and look at all the evidence, then surely you would believe in evolution. But here's the thing, it's not a battle over the evidence because whether you're a creationist or you're an evolutionist, we all have the same evidence. We all live on the same planet. We all all observe the same world. The difference is how you interpret the evidence. And you interpret evidence based upon your worldview. Right? You interpret evidence based upon your worldview. Because many people in our culture, at least in our churches today, think man is neutral in his thinking, especially scientists. But the Bible tells us you're either for Christ or... You're a grains Christ. You either walk in light or you walk in darkness. There's no such thing as neutrality. Man is not neutral in his thinking. We all have a bias, and your bias will dictate how you see the world around you. Let's just think about the issue quickly of creation, because here's the thing. When you look at um, what Genesis tells us about the origin of the world, and you look what the evolutionists tell us about the origin of the world, they are two completely different histories of the world. You know, some Christians want to say, well, maybe God used the Big Bang to create. 
But just look at, the, look at those chronologies, because in the evolutionary cosmology, the earth starts out as a hot molten blob. But notice, in the Bible, how does the earth start out for the first two days? It doesn't start out as a hot molten blob. It's covered in water. It's covered in water. Notice in the evolutionary cosmology, the stars and the sun come before the earth, but in the Bible, the earth is made on day one, and the sun, moon, and stars are made on which day? Day four. So it's not just like you can say, well, God used the Big Bang. Otherwise, what you're saying, what God did in his word, is not true. The reason we have two different chronologies of earth history is because we have two different worldviews. We have two different presuppositions by which the evidence is viewed. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus, in the law of God, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Just think about it. The reason we have a seven-day week goes back to the book of Genesis. Next time you meet your atheist friend, you just ask them, why do you have a seven-day week? If there is no God, why do we have a seven-day week? We know why we have um, a day. We know why we have a month. We know why we have a year. All those things you can observe in science. But the week... There's no scientific explanation for the week. It's based upon what God did in creation. Think about the issue of the fall, because the reality is that we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, we see death and destruction. You know, if you speak to many atheists, many skeptics today, they'll say, well, if there is a loving God, why does he allow all this death and suffering in the world? And see, how you answer that question will be based upon how you view the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we read this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest, therefore, thou shalt surely die. And you can read that as, Die in you shall die. Adam didn't drop dead the day he disobeyed God. God is telling us the day that you eat of it, the process of death will begin in the world. In fact, you see this in Genesis 3, 17 and 19, because God tells Adam after he's disobeyed, for dust thou art and to dust you shall return. You know what happens when you die? You go back to the dust of the ground. God is telling us what happens. In fact, Paul in the New Testament tells us man's actions led to sin and death coming into the world. That's the picture the Bible paints for us. Man's actions led to sin and death coming into the world. Romans 5.12, Paul tells us this, Wherefore, as, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Paul traces death and suffering back to Adam, Adam and his sin. And yes, in context, this is talking about human sin, but Paul's going to go on in Romans 8 to tell us that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs. And he traces even that evil in the world back to the book of Genesis. In fact, in verse 17 in Romans, 5, uh, Romans chapter 5, Paul says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one. Paul says death is like a king over creation. It rules. People die because of Adam's sin. It reigns over creation. 
And then if you think about those passages in Scripture, which you tend to skip over because they seem boring, they know the genealogies that you have there in Scripture, Genesis 5. But they're important, they're there for a reason. What, what does it tell you in Genesis 5? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. What's Moses trying to tell you? He's trying to tell you people die because of Adam's sin. You know, one day, I'll die. One day, Neil will die. One day, my son, who's at the back, will die. You know what? One day, you will all die. But will you die in Adam, or will you die in Christ? And that's the message we need to relate to this world that we live in. Think about the biblical picture of the world. In the beginning, God made everything very good, and then we see death come into the world as an intrusion, disease, carnivory, thorns, natural disasters we see coming into the world. But the great message of the gospel is that we look forward to the restoration of creation when one day God will restore creation in the new heavens and the new earth. But here's the thing. Think about it. If you believe God used evolution, or if you believe God used the Big Bang billions of years, you've got a problem because if millions of years is true, then in the initial creation, there was animal death, disease, extinction, and natural disasters from the, from the start. So what will God restore creation to? Well, if he's going to restore it to as it was in the beginning, from an evolutionary point of view, then it's going to be an earth full of death and suffering and disease. See, if you add to God's word, it messes up the entire Bible. It messes up the message of creation, fall, and redemption. See, if you take Genesis the way Jesus took Genesis, then originally man and the animals were what? Vegetarian to begin with. There was no death and suffering. There was no carnivorous activity to begin with because they were eaten from the fruit of a tree yielding seed and every green herb. Originally, there was no carnivorous activity. Man was vegetarian. But here's the thing. When we look at dinosaur bones today, you know, according to secular scientists, or well, even if you just look at these dinosaur bones, we do find diseases in them. We find brain tumors, we find cancer in those bones. Secular scientists will date them, and we would disagree with this, to be millions of years old. But think about that again. If you're arguing that God used evolution to create, how did God end the world? And, and, the, and the, the, the week of creation. What did he say? How did he, God sum up creation? He said it was very good. Now just think about this. Have you ever seen someone suffering from cancer? Just ask yourself that question. Is it very good? Of course not. When you see someone suffer from a brain tumor or someone suffer from cancer, you know it's not very good. But if you're going to be consistent, if you're going to say God used evolution to create the world then you've got a problem because God called all that very good. That's why we know those bones aren't millions of years old because it would contradict God's word. See, even in the fossil record you find thorns and secular scientists would date those to be millions of years old. But again, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18, what do we read? Thorns also and thistles it shall bring forth for you. See, thorns are a result of the curse. God cursed creation because of Adam's sin. Those thorns are not millions of years old. Otherwise, again, it would contradict God's word. See, here's the problem. We have two views of history. One view tells us millions of years of death, suffering, and disease leading to man's existence. The other tells us Adam's sin brought death 
and suffering into the world. Those two worldviews are completely contradictory. You cannot put them together. And you know what? As a church, we need to wake up to that fact. We need to wake up to that fact that those are two different worldviews. Well, what about the issue of the flood? Because if what we're saying is true, if there was no um, death before sin, then people are going to say, well, how do you explain the fossil record? How do you explain all those fossils? What, what do you do with the dinosaur bones? Well, the Bible tells us there was a global flood, not a local flood. You see, the reason so many people in our church and our culture believe the world's millions of years old is because they've been taught from an early age when they go to school all the way up as they continue on is that those rock layers will lay down slowly over millions of years. And you see, if that's true, the church realized in the 18th century, well, if, if those rock layers are millions of years old, well, you can't have a global flood. Because what would a global flood do? It would destroy those rock layers. And so the church began to twist scripture and to say, well, maybe it wasn't a global flood. Maybe it was just a local flood. And see, here's another error we make when we teach the flood. How many of you recognize that picture? Come on, admit it. How many recognize it? Yeah, you recognize it. How many people have got books like that at home with a Noah's Ark like that in? But just think about it. When you see that picture, what message does it convey to you? What message? Fairy tale, right? Not true. Because when you see that, you obviously know that that boat is not going to survive a global flood. But see, if you teach your children, if you open up that book before your child goes to bed and you show them that picture and you try and teach them the flood from that picture and then they go to the government schools and they learn about the real world, when they grow up, you know what they're going to do? They're going to put two and two together and they're going to realize, well, the Bible is just a book of fairy tales. It doesn't teach us about the real world. You see, you know what the problem is in the church today? You know, you can ask Neil, when we go to churches in England, by and large, every Sunday we go, there's a generation missing in the church. You know what that generation is? The younger generation. Because they've already been won by the world. Because in their mind, the Bible's a fairy tale. Because they already know they believe Darwin's theory of evolution. And so if you've got pictures like that, rip them up, take them out. You need to teach them the truth of biblical history. That's what the ark would have looked like. That's at the ark encounter in Kentucky in America. If you can get the chance to go, I would encourage you to go and see the ark encounter. But when you see it, I've been a couple of times, you stand back and you think, wow, amazing. And all the questions that you have, all the doubts that you have will disappear because you realize it was such a massive Vessel. See, there's a right way to teach the Bible. You want to teach the Bible as an account of real history. Because here's the thing. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if the Lord Jesus is your Savior, if you believe he has saved you from his sin, then guess what? He believed in the book of Genesis, as we've already seen, even when it comes to the flood. Because he says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they did drink, and they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. See, Jesus believed in the historicity of the book of Genesis. And he recognized the flood was a real event and it destroyed all the people. It can't have been a local flood. And it definitely wasn't a myth because Jesus treats it 
as real history. You know, people will say to me, well, where, where's all the evidence for the flood? But the flood left its mark. You know, when you look at Grand Canyon, the evidence for the flood is staring you right in the face. But if, if you're a secularist, if you're an atheist, you'll look at the Grand Canyon and you'll try and say, well, a long time and a little bit of water, the Colorado River that runs through the canyon is that little bit of water, caused the Grand Canyon to form. But even secular science scientists today are recognizing, you know what, that explanation just doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense of the canyon. I'm not saying they're becoming creationists, but a better interpretation of the canyon, of the rock layers that we see all around the world, is a lot of water and a little bit of time. See, there's two different viewpoints based upon their different starting points. And how you view the world depends on your worldview. But here's the thing, there's evidence, there's there's so much evidence today that shows you that the flood, the evidence for the flood is true. One of our colleagues in America, Dr. Andrew Snellen, has been doing research um, at this section of the the Grand Canyon over the last couple of years, the East Kaibab monocline at Carbon um, Canyon, and he had to go through um, a, a legal battle because the secularists did not want him there. They knew what he believed and they didn't want him you know, looking around for evidence for the flood. But he managed to, to, to win the day and the Lord really prevailed in that case. But he sh- he's looked at, at the rock layers there, the Carbon Canyon. And if you notice, what do you notice about those rock layers? They're bent at a 90 degree angle. Well, the question is, how do you bend rock slowly over millions of years? Have you ever tried to bend rock? Well, if you do try and bend rock, it'll it'll probably snap. But if you're going to bend it over millions of years, you'd expect to see metamorphic processes there. But when you look at those rock layers, there are no metamorphic processes running through those rocks. Those rocks were laid down quickly and they were laid down underwater and bent and then they hardened. See, the flood explains those rock layers. You cannot explain them through millions of years of evolution. See, how many people remember Mount St. Helens? May 18th, 1980. Might be new for some of the the younger people in the audience. But here's the thing. The explosion that took place at Mount St. Helens showed you it doesn't take millions of years to form rock layers because when, when that volcano erupted, it showed you that rock layers can be laid down quickly. Those rock layers there... Um, in that triangle were laid down in a matter of hours. It didn't take millions of years. It didn't take time, as one of my friends says. It took a process. It didn't take time. It took a process. And see, a couple of years later, there was another, there was another explosion at Engineers Canyon, and it caused Engineers Canyon to form. Do you know how long it took to form Engineers Canyon? Nine hours. Nine hours. Engineers Canyon is one-fortieth the size of Grand Canyon, and it was created in a matter of hours. But notice what's running through the middle of Engineers Canyon. What do you see? There's a little river running through the canyon. The little river did not cause the canyon to form. What caused the canyon to form? A catastrophe. A catastrophe caused the canyon to form. Here's the thing as we end tonight. I want you to think about the message of the flood because in Genesis 7, what does God tell Noah? Noah, remember, was, the, was righteous in all the earth. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, 
And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut Noah in. The Lord called Noah and his family to come into that ark. You know, the Bible tells us Noah lived among an evil and wicked generation. And Peter tells us Noah was a preacher or a herald of righteousness. But it was Noah and his family who entered the ark to escape the judgment of the world. And it was God who shut Noah in to the ark. You know, once that door was shut, that was it. And the people knew that. And there was a judgment coming. The judgment of the flood. What does the Bible tell us? There is another judgment to come. There is another judgment to come. As the Lord Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. But what does Jesus tell us in John 10.9? Because think about it. Apart from the cross, the ark is probably the most powerful picture of redemption in the Bible. You know, just think about it. The message Noah had was go through that door to be saved. The message we proclaim to people, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And when what did Jesus go on to say? That you would be in his hands and you'd be in the Father's hands and no one would be able to snatch you out of their hands. Once God closed that door for Noah, they were safe in the ark. Once you trust in Christ, you are safe in both the Father and his hands. And see, here's the thing. The culture out there rejects that judgment to come. Why? Because they reject the judgment of the flood. In their mind, the flood is just another myth. And so the judgment to come is just another myth. And so if you're going to explain the gospel to people, guess what you have to do? You have to remove the obstacles they have. You have to remove the obstacle of millions of years and evolution in order to explain the gospel to them. Because the gospel is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the message we take to a fallen world and hopefully that's helped um, answer some of the questions, the many questions you may have um, tonight. But I doubt you'd remember everything I said. I don't even remember everything I say. But Neil will be at the back. There is a number of resources there. He does have a card machine. I would recommend um, this book. It's basically the message of the Answers in Genesis um, ministry, The Lie, which basically is an overview of what I've spoken upon tonight. Um, There's another book at the back called Glass House, um, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. All of the common arguments for evolution in millions of years will be answered in that book. And then we have another book at the back, The Gender and Marriage War. If you want to know some of the answers to some of the questions that come up regarding these issues today, I would recommend that book. And then there's a core number of books you can see there on the screen. Um, especially if you're a young person, you can see there quick answers to tough questions. Um, there's two volumes. I would recommend you get those books. And if you've got little children, and there are core resources for those. And if you've got even littler children, uh, there are some special books for those little ones at the back and then I would recommend pocket guides if you want um, a book you can read a little booklet you can read over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea then those pocket guides cover all sorts of, of different issues and they're, they're really good also to give um, to people who you might know are struggling with some of these issues but I'm going to leave it there thank you for being attentive please do look at the resources and make sure you equip yourselves and your families to be able to answer some of these questions And I'll hand back over to Reverend Peterson to close.